Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. Every fortnight I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I am joined by the architect Anya Murray Youssef, the recipient of the 2021 Emerging Architect Award in Canada, and we talk about her project, the Craven Road Micro House in Toronto. Anya started with a really simple brief from her client Laurel, who didn't need a lot of space, wasn't worried about resale and just wanted a house for her. And I love the design that Anya has delivered. In the interview, I find out how Anya fought tooth and nail for her client to get approval for the design, how she worked within a small footprint to create a simple and private living space with plenty of daylight, and how she delivered the project to a modest budget by being smart with material choices. If you'd like to find out more about Anya and the Craven Road project, you can find information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Anya. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Hi, George. I'm very thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah, no pleasure to have you. So you're talking to me from uh, Toronto in Canada, and we're going to be talking about your project that is in Toronto, the Craven Road um, House. Is it the Craven Road House or the Craven Road Micro House? Maybe I should be calling it. Yeah, sometimes we refer to it as the Craven Road Micro House. I think micro might be a slight exaggeration, but um, yeah. as far as homes go here, it's definitely um, very tiny, and uh, it's 750 square feet, which by your metric is about 70 square meters, I would say. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, first line, and you've already answered one of my, my questions. Um, <laughs> but we'll definitely get on to the, um, yeah, we'll get on to the, the, the micro aspect because there is something yeah. interesting with this project just of its location and the, the buildings on the street, and it'd be great to, to find out about that. Um, but also to find out about you, um, Anya, because you used to work, um, well, you've worked for a, a few different practices, but you worked for Sarah Wigglesworth um, in London, which is where, where I'm based. Um, what What made you... You know what happened? You, what made you leave London, and then um, what was your reason for for wanting to start the practice back in two thousand and sixteen? Um, well, I worked for Sarah when I was a student, so during um, uh, a, a break in our studies that we that we naturally have here, um, and then I went back to her after I um, I finished school, um, and that was in two thousand and six. Um, and, uh, the reason why, so I was there with my husband, he was doing his PhD at the time, uh, in London. Um, and we were planning to stay quite a bit longer initially. Um, but then the economic crisis hit and, um, uh, I became anxious. I definitely wanted to, you know, the plan was always to come back to, um, to Canada and become licensed as an architect here. And, uh, um, so we just decided to, uh, to come back sooner rather than later. We were worried about, uh, the impact of, um, the crisis on the economy here and being able to settle into, um, the, the, the field in Toronto. And so, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we left a little prematurely and, um, you know, I miss it dearly. <laughs> I miss London dearly. 
Uh, what is it that you miss about London? Everything. Like the people, the culture, the energy, um, you know, just the fabric of the city. It's like, it's just such an incredibly unique place, I think. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a great, you know, European city, but without any of the kind of monumentality or preciousness or historicism, uh, I, I find like it's just mm -hmm. it's so it's very flawed and it's very human. Like and I'm talking about the built environment, you know, yeah. like it's a very human place um, in many, many yeah. ways. And I, it's, it has a kind of uh, uh, a kind of frailty about it. That's just really beautiful um, yeah. and strength. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Well, if it helps you with missing London today, it's we're recording at the end of July, so right in the middle of summer, and it's been pissing it down with rain all day. It's so, so same over here. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one thing. Actually, the lack of snow. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was in London, I don't know, it must have been like 2000 and, it was 2008 or 2009, there was, um, there was a snowstorm. Yeah. And I remember we like we were in Sarah's office and we went to the window and the snow was coming and I started to cry <laughs> and I was shocked and I was like oh my god like you know it was like just I missed it I missed it so much I think snow is one of the most beautiful things in the whole world so living without the seasonal changes was hard for me but yeah yeah but you you set up the practice your own studio in 2016 yeah um so still you know, in the span of time with architecture practices and, you know, five years, that usually takes that amount of time just for the first few projects to be published and to be seen by the outside world. Does it still feel like quite a new, fresh venture or is, is that five years um, flown by? Both. Yeah. I mean, it's flown by. I had a child in the middle of it all. So uh, my first child in the middle of it all. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a blur for a lot of reasons. But um yeah, I, you know, I feel like it, in some ways, like I have um, developed as a professional and uh, developed my craft, you know, um, more in the last five years um, than, you know, in the previous 10. Um, and I think that's just, you know, the imperative of having to do it all yourself and mm -hmm. solve every problem yourself and uh, and so on. Um, uh but, you know, so in some ways I feel, I feel fundamentally like a different architect than when I started. Um, but in other ways it feels like it was just, you know, it was yesterday. Yeah. And did you have a reason for, for setting up? Was there a kind of burning desire or was it circumstance? You know, I think I always, like, I always toyed with the idea of starting my own practice or having my own practice. Um, I think I definitely, uh, I had the feeling always though that I didn't know enough, you know, like I, I needed more time, more time, more time. And I think at a certain point I realized I was probably always going to feel that way because, you know, if you're, if you're an architect in the practice and, you know, you're doing ambitious work or, um, uh, you know, you're, you're always solving new problems. Like that's part of what's both amazing and exhausting about, I think, mm -hmm. you know, our, 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 um, our field is definitely something I love about it. Um, and so I think I got to a stage where I just decided I know I, you know, I have enough of a network and enough of a support system um, and enough resourcefulness to figure out how to get through 
um, you know, how to solve any problem that comes my way. And, and I'm just going to do it, um, you know, before I get too old and tired, basically. <laughs> um, you know, it, it came about like I needed a change. I felt, I felt like I'd sort of hit a wall in, um, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the profession working for other people. And, you know, I'd had amazing experiences and learned an immense amount in the practices that I was involved with. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, it, it was, it was a slow start. I, I, I knew I needed a change. So I left my position. Um, I started taking on more teaching work, which I'd been doing part-time and I started teaching full-time. Um, and then, you know, I received a call here and there, which, Hey, you know, I heard that you've left. Would you like to look at this job? Would you like to look at that job? And then, um, you know, and then it just started moving and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this mm-hmm. <laughs> and do this and see if I, if I can make it work. And how did Craven Roads um, fit into that then? And, you know, how did that start as a project? So, um, so I've been very lucky that, um, the, the previous practice that I worked for in, uh, in Toronto, um, they have been, uh, really amazing supporters of my practice and they've referred me projects that are, uh, you know, if they're too busy or those, or the projects are too small for them, they've grown Mm -hmm. significantly since the time that I started with them. And even since I've left, um, so this project actually came through, uh, through them. Um, when I met the owner, um, of, uh, the Craven Roadhouse, I was seven months pregnant and I thought, I, you know, I had almost stopped interviewing for new work cause I thought mm-hmm. he was going to give a sole practitioner seven months pregnant a job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to see her because Craven Road is a sort of infamous, um, uh, street, um, really interesting part of town. Um, one of Canada's most well-known, um, architectural practices, Shim Sutcliffe built one of their first houses on Craven Road. So most people will know the name Craven Road because of their Craven Road house. Right. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I was intrigued by my initial conversations with, um, the, the homeowner, her name is Laurel Hutchison. Um, I told her I'm seven months pregnant, but I, you know, intend to continue working and, you know, um, um, it might be a slow start, but, you know, uh, let's definitely meet. And we hit it off and, um, uh, she sort of, she took a leap of faith, uh, in a way, um, Mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't have a, uh, well-established independent portfolio of work at that time. And, um, and I was the first person and only person that she interviewed. Yeah. And what's the, the, um, Craven Road? I mean, there's a, I saw there's an interesting video online. I think it's like a news article about Craven Road and the smallest detached homes in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's well known for in terms of people knowing the name of the street? Yes, exactly. So it's the one sided street. It's mm-hmm. what we would call, uh, so in Toronto, there's the, the common typology in the city. Uh, homes will have, uh, or, or, or properties will have like the main house on the front of the property. And then on the back of the property, there'll be a garage or sometimes mm-hmm. a small coach house. And then we have at the back, what's called a laneway, which you guys would call a muse, mm-hmm. um, where you could access the, the, the coach house or the, um, the garage Craven road initially, um, 
didn't exist and those uh, homes were part of much larger, uh, very significant lots. Mm -hmm. um, and these were sort of coach houses that were in the back for um, uh, like factory workers and, um, um, and so on. And so at some point, the lots were severed and a, a, a narrow street was built that addressed these very small homes. Um, but that means that it's a one-sided street. So all of those yeah. houses are on the east side and they face uh, what I've read is something like North America's longest public fence or something. <laughs> but it's a, you know, there's a big fence and there's actually an amazing sort of urban forest there in the rear yard. So these houses actually face onto some amazing, yeah. uh, amazingly beautiful large trees and, and so on, which are the backyards of the, uh, the properties on the, uh, the parallel, the parallel street. Yeah. So these are so this size house, there's a lot of people living in these these houses on the street. There's other architects that have, have worked on them. So it's it's was it when the commission came along or even the inquiry came along, was it did it already kind of pique your interest? Is it the kind of thing like, Oh, I'd love to work on one of these in the challenge? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love working, uh, you know, I love um, the potential to reinterpret any uh, uh, typology. And this is definitely a unique, like these are Victorian workers' cottages. So mm -hmm. it's definitely a unique typology and it's kind of a dying typology um, because these things weren't built to last. You know, they, they've long exceeded their lifespan. Um, here in Canada, we largely build out of timber. Um, and so these are, you know, these are built out of uh, basic, um, uh, you know, like two by four timbers that have, you know, uh, have been exposed to fire and rot. And it's also an area where there, uh, there's a huge prevalence of termites. So there's tons of termite damage. So mm -hmm. these houses have, um, they've exceeded their lifespan and, um, and, and generally they're in very, like all of them are in, you know, varying states of, of disrepair, the original ones. Um, mm -hmm because of the cost of the escalating cost of property in Toronto, um, which, you know, um, which we've, we've seen here in the last, you know, I'd say, I don't know, 15 to 20 years. Um, it doesn't make sense always for people to maintain um, a, like a small, um, a small gross floor area for their mm -hmm. home. So you see a lot of um, really, you know, in, even in terms of single family detached, you see, um, smaller properties developed with like three-story homes to basically maximize the value of the lot. Mm. Um, and sadly, that's something that's happening uh, on Craven Road because it's not it's not designated in any way by the city. Um, it's not recognized as um, architecturally um, valuable. And, you know, I think there's a lot of politics around that. Um, mm -hmm. So you see a lot of what we call like builders, like box type homes going up that are three stories high that um are uh, uh, obliterating the that the fabric of the the workers cottages that yeah. originally populated the street yeah so you can totally max these houses out but laurel your client didn't want to do that then no, she wanted to, she had a very tight budget and um, she wanted to build, a, she's a retired school teacher. So this is, she's hoping this is the last home that she ever lives in. Um, she lives alone. She 
plans to be living alone um, uh, till the end of her years. And um, she basically just said, I want, you know, she wasn't worried about resale. She wasn't worried about the market. She wanted to maximize the funds that she had to rebuild her house in a way that uh, would accommodate her throughout her, um, you know, this next phase of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, she wanted to be able to age in the, in the home. So, um, you know, if we could make it work on one story, that was going to be optimal for her because, um, uh, you know, she wouldn't have to <clears throat> rely on going up and downstairs. And, um, you know, it would also be less expensive if we could um, if we could make it work within the existing footprint. Mm-hmm. The unique situation here is that most of the most of the workers' cottages or the original homes on that street they take up about half the lot. So they go about halfway back and then there's a backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are about, say, 500 square feet, four to 500 square feet on their footprint, which is about 40, 45 square meters. Her house, um, because there is, the back of it faces onto a Buddhist temple, uh, which is like, you know, in the middle of this sort of suburban neighborhood mm-hmm. um, and a parking lot. For whatever reason, at some point, her house was um, added onto um, at the rear, and so it went all the way to the back of the lot and sort of cut away on the side. So she doesn't have a backyard, but she has a sort of side yard. Right. So it meant that the existing ground floor footprint was a little bit larger than your average worker's cottage, and that was enough to um, uh, to sort of uh, allow us to avoid adding a second story. So kind of extruded version. It's a lot more slender and the garden comes around the side. So this, there's an existing house that was on the site. and your, So your design has taken that footprint of the house that was there. What, what was the house like then that was here? What's it, and typically, what do these cottages look like, the ones that haven't been maxed out or transformed by architects? So they're one-story um, timber frame uh, cottages. They're typically symmetrical. So you'll have uh, your front door right in the middle with a window on either side and then a little Victorian gable above the front door, which is usually um, um, doesn't actually have any volumetric or, or spatial impact on the interior. Like it's all part of an attic and the roof is usually an enclosed attic. That's um, um, that's not used as uh, inhabitable space. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're usually quite dark inside, you know, the small windows, um, even though they're a small footprint, uh, like every Victorian home, they're still chopped up into a million smaller rooms. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, and they're typically clad in, um, you know, wood siding or shingles, um, that kind of thing. A lot of them have been reclad over time. Um, Laurel's house was actually in the process of being reclad when she realized that she needed uh, it needed a lot more work. She had hired a, somebody to come and um, uh, repair the cladding. That person started to take off the existing cladding, saw that this structure was completely damaged by rot and termites and, and fire and told her that, you know, she would be uh, best off having an architect look at, look at the structure um, that she might need to rebuild a significant portion of the home, if not all of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an opportunity then that came out of a situation. It wasn't, she was happy to live in the, the cottage format then. 
Yeah, she was slowly control. trying to repair it um, and uh, and realizing that it was a losing battle. Yeah. As many homeowners <laughs> do, um, uh, especially in this city. I mean, I know in, in London, like, you know, most of the homes are masonry, like at least in the city of London, right? And so yeah. they have a much longer lifespan and they're much... Um, uh, like the bones, uh, you know, the bones are solid. Here, uh, most of the housing stock is uh, is timber frame, mm-hmm. and was not meant to to last as long as it as it does. So all of our housing stock is slowly being turned over and reinvented in in some way, either through renovation or refurbishment or mm-hmm. um, full rebuilds in the city. And so, so you were seven months pregnant then when you first. Um met Laurel and embarked on this project and I like this it's always it's always the other way around of clients always have babies during the development of a (laughs) so it's the architect's turn this time um so what happened here then in terms of the sort of first stages and you know Laurel kind of went ahead with with working with you very soon after deciding that you you also had a baby so what was um there's a lot going on here could you tell me about um those the, that initial kind of phase of the the project and developing designs yeah so um so initially we were trying to so basically in order to get permission to change the the footprint uh or the height um of an existing home uh or if you're building new you have to go through an additional permitting process here um which uh, I guess is similar to what you would call site plan mm-hmm. approval. Um, and, uh, and at that time, there was a like six-month-plus wait to get a hearing uh, for that. Um, and um, Laurel's house, I mean, it was in such a state of disrepair that it was actually becoming unlivable, and so we needed to move a little more quickly for her. She wanted to mm-hmm. avoid that. And so we were looking at ways that we could basically work within the existing bylaws to rebuild this thing um, without having to go through this involved permitting process, which meant that we had to argue it as a renovation. Um, And, you know, I spoke to a planning lawyer on our Laurel's behalf at the beginning, and and I was advised to try and argue this as a renovation, basically, um, for for those reasons. Also because um, it was unlikely that we would get permission to maintain the existing, the unusual setbacks at the rear uh, of this house and to maintain that large ground floor footprint if we were to basically start new. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't grandfather the term grandfathering. They don't grandfather things in unless you are retaining over 50% of the existing structure above grade. So yep. it becomes this interesting puzzle. Um, so we decided to approach it that way for better or worse. Um, and, um, and also, you know, in terms of, um, uh, the existing footprint of the house was actually really interesting. Uh, the way it stepped back and formed this sort of courtyard on the side was actually really lovely. Um, and so, you know, um, there was a lot of potential there uh, for a great house without having to um, completely uh, reinvent the way it sat on the site. Um, yeah. 
So the beginning is a blur, but at some point, you know, I did, <laughs> I had the baby and I recall I was in that, like, uh, the first, I don't know if you have children, but, uh, yeah. okay. So you like the first few months, you're just like on adrenaline and, um, you know, I like, yeah, didn't need sleep. <laughs> she was waking up every three hours. I was feeding her. And I remember, uh, like working, like doing all nighters, which, you know, I gave up, like, you know, after I left architecture school, like I was like, I could never Wait, do you're doing all nighters after you had the baby. Yeah. So she was a Did, baby. On the designs. Yeah. So basically I remember when wow. we were, I was doing the, the drawings for like the, the, the site plan application, essentially. Um, I, I was just completely on adrenaline and I was like feeding mm. her and drawing and feeding her and drawing and feeding her and drawing. <laughs> it didn't last that long, but it lasted just long enough to like get, to get that push out. Um, you know, I also had help and I also had one person helping me in the office. And yeah. so, you know, he was, inter he was building models and, you know, and, and, and obviously, um, support, <laughs> supporting the whole endeavor. But, um, but yeah, the in, the initial kind of conception of all that came with this in this like blur of having a newborn, and it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't like to over romanticize things, but it was all it was a sort of like magical <laughs> little time. Yeah. Um, and then I mean, what what um, uh, what materialized was like a huge a lot of pushback from the city and a ton of negotiating um, mm. to basically allow. Um, to have them allow us to maintain the footprint of the original house. Um, and um, the irony is, you know, we were there to like respect the existing fabric, reinvent the typology, you know, do something which was, you know, in my opinion, quite sensitive, architecturally sensitive and, um, um, and actually, you know, not overdevelop the site, like so many of the, the, the neighboring properties. Um, but because it was, you know, unusual and atypical, it ended up being, um, a difficult process negotiating that with the city, but we did and we got there and, um, um, so how did you it. argue that then as, um, as a refurbishment, was it all, was the argument all angled on the fact that it was going to be the same footprint you were knocking it down rebuilding it different shape different profiles but the footprint was the same yeah so i mean the bylaw is involved and there are things you can do and there are things you can't do so there were ways that you could you know after going through the bylaw i realized okay there are ways that you are allowed what we call as of right so without getting special permission to change the roof shape so at that point you know the, the concept of maintaining the footprint reinventing the plan and then somehow like reinventing this roof would then form the, you know, the, the project. Mm -hmm. um, um, and we knew that the roof was going to be like a huge component of this, um, of reinventing this, this space. Um, the city required us to basically keep 50% of the walls above grade in order for it to be called a renovation. As in keep the existing actuals. The existing yeah. studs. So even like, so it's absurd. It, it's, it's absurd and it's a problem here, but it means that like, you know, you've got a, you've got walls full of rotted termite eaten studs and you're keeping them like, you know, you're, you're sensibly like you're, you're sistering up all of the, the studs cause you're reinforcing it them, you know, cause they're no good. Mm. Right. Yeah. But you're basically burying a bunch of old wood in in a wall in order to basically maintain and yeah. you see this all over the city happening 
I'm glad this happens in other cities because it's absurd because kind of... it's poor. It's poor building science. It's poor building science. So in reality, what happens is you know we rebuild the wall and then we slowly take apart the old wall, and so you know she ends up with a new wall in place of the old wall. But as far as the city's concerned, it's it's absurd. And I mean, I was doing diagrams and calculations and. They were asking me to recalculate things in a different way and this existing, you know, existing windows and new windows. I mean, it's like Kafkaesque. It's truly mm -hmm. absurd. Um, and the greatest absurdity of the whole thing was that when we did strip it, um, so we had done some, our structural engineer, who's fabulous, had done some investigations of the existing foundation to see, because we didn't even know if the foundation was good. And if the foundation wasn't, if we thought the foundation wasn't good and we'd have to knock down all these walls and rebuild the foundation, we would have to permit this as a new dwelling. So they dug three holes around the structure. It's not a big structure. So three holes, you know, um, should give you an indication of what's going on. And in all of them, the, you know, the foundation went here, we have to go below the frost level. So we have to go, um, uh, I'm trying to translate everything for you. I'm like about a meter and a half below grade with our yeah. foundations. <clears throat> um, so buildings don't heave and move and, and so on with the freeze-thaw cycle. Um, the foundation looked good. Like we were actually pleasantly surprised. Well, yeah. when they actually started to take everything apart, they realized that those were like the three good spots on the foundation. <laughs> and the rest <laughs> of it was like shambles. Um, and so they actually had to do significant repairs to the foundations and they had to rebuild the whole top of the foundation wall. So in order to do that, you technically have to remove the stud wall on top. Yeah. But as soon as we remove the stud wall, the city was going to send us back. Like They were going to send us back to square one and make us apply for the six month hearing. Laurel had already moved out of her house. Mm -hmm. The thing had been stripped. It was open to the elements and they were going to say stop and start the whole permit process again. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I personally get really worked up about injustice, and so I felt like that was hugely unjust, and uh, and so I was fighting it on that end, but I was also fighting it on the technical end, trying to like just make sense of this for them. In the end, we had an amazing young contractor. This is one of his first projects. He's a trained architect as well, um, and basically, he you know they did this like Da Vinci esque thing where they they basically like they took the existing stud walls, reinforced them like. Um, lifted them above the foundation wall, repaired the foundation wall, and dropped them back onto it in wow. order to appease the city. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of absurdity in the early days of this project in order just to keep it moving. Um, but, you know, we got through it. So you could have, if you had just knocked down this house, built a three-story max out kind of type thing, it, it could have been easier. You're kind of... Well, we would have had to go. For being considerate. That happens a lot in the city. Yeah, that happens yeah. a lot in the city. You're punished for being considerate. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's what I was saying earlier. It's kind of reassuring to hear that it happens in yes. places because we feel it happens in London. I'm sure lots of listeners feel it happens in there. But yeah, look, I mean, there's a ton of bureaucracy where you come from. I can say that yeah. from personal experience. <laughs> but there's a ton of bureaucracy here yeah. as well, and it's um, a lot of paper pushing and a lot of um, just irrational decisions. Um, yeah. The reality is those people who want to build a three-story house, they still have to go and get those special permissions that I'm yeah. talking about. But because there's so much precedent for it, you know, the city acts mm. on precedent, it's like it's easy to excuse that. Yeah. But with when you have something which is unusual, um, you know, 
nobody wants to put their thinking cap on. And so it's very, it becomes a complex, you know, argument. Um, Yeah. Well, it's unusual if we're looking at it from the front and from the streets and the typical houses are symmetrical, as you said, with the pitched roof and the door right in the middle. This one and where the city were maybe getting jitters with it is it do, it does look different to to you and I and to to a lot of people. It's it make it's it's beautiful and it makes sense and there's a complete logic to it. But you've the door is to the side and you've got what you've described as a kind of sawtooth roof. So you sort of see half of the roof at the front and then half of it's kind of been chopped away. Um, why was that important? Um, the the roof is key in this design and in terms of daylight and in terms of the space inside why was that important to you to do this with the roof and to push this through with the city so um so for laurel you know she's a woman who lives alone and um um she i don't know if she would describe herself as an introvert but she's definitely somebody who she asked for home that was extremely peaceful, extremely private, mm-hmm. um, but something that was full of light, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, that's always an interesting challenge when you're working on an urban infill project, you know, you're working in a certain level of density and lack of privacy, you know, ostensibly that, you know, um, punching windows is, um, uh, needs to be extremely strategic and how you pull in light needs to be strategic. So, you know, the idea that we actually could, um, you know, that we, uh, we have the opportunity to actually make use of some height and some volume um, without having to create inhabitable space on an upper level meant that we could pull in, a, you know, a lot of light um, with, uh, that was dissociated from any views in or out of the house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, the idea of, of sort of reinventing that Victorian gable uh, in a way uh, that it became this sort of volume of light was integral to the, to the design concept. Did that sort of seem an, an obvious solution to you? Or was that kind of developed through loads of different iterations in terms of just the overall, mm. you know, one of the big sort of headline things of design is that form and taking that wedge away from the roof, so having part flat roof and part sloped roof in the front. Yeah, I mean, uh, trying to think back to the process of this, I think this was not this was not um, a solution that came through a ton of iterations of what this could be. I think, um, to some degree, the parameters around what we were allowed to do were so strict. So, if we were going to uh, be scooping light from a clerestory window like this, it had to be a certain distance from the property line um, because of. Uh, um, fire concerns basically you know that you can only have uh windows you know fewer and fewer windows the closer you are to a property line um yeah and so a lot of those and then again we were working with the height of the existing wall so um the wall that was um 
uh, naturally to one side of the property was taller where the addition had been built. So it was almost, you know, it was one of those things that in some ways the volume um, designed itself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that was really about the, this sort of sawtooth roof. It gives you the opportunity to have windows on a vertical wall, but high up. So there's no view out of them necessarily other than of sky, but they're bringing light in that's hit bouncing off the ceiling. It's, it's a device, is it, for bringing in light, but without compromising on privacy. No one can... Yeah, it's a huge light in. scoop. I mean, it also yeah. helps to to ventilate a little bit of... to, to, to achieve a bit of stack ventilation because those windows are... Uh, half of them are operable. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it creates a kind of glow because it, it, it brings in the light in a way that uh, it like bounces off that, um, yeah. that large north wall, which is directly on the property line, which itself cannot have any windows. Yeah. Um, and it's really generous as well, isn't it? For a small footprint of the house, you've got all this volume in the ceiling that you have a lot of volume. Would normally be filled with something like storage or more rooms. Exactly, with more rooms. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And was that was that kind of liberating then, as a as a brief from Laurel that there wasn't a, this great demand on? I need this many bedrooms and I need well, this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the reason why I was determined to get this project after I met Laurel is because um, she was extremely liberating as a client. Like when I mm. went to meet her. She said, look, I don't have a lot of stuff. I don't need a lot of stuff. I don't like a lot of stuff. <laughs> I don't have a lot of, like, requirements. You know, there, she really was extremely, mo like, extremely modest in, mm. in the way that she lived and how she wanted to live. And um, um, there was nothing that she said that she had to have or needed, you know, other than, uh, you know, a, a bathroom um, a bedroom and, and then a home full of light, you know? Mm. Um, I remember when I showed her our first floor plan and she, there was a bath and a tub and she was like, wow, like, can I have that? Like, you know, do we have enough room for that? Can I afford that? Or she had a skylight over her bathtub. Like these were luxuries that she had never assumed, um, you know, she, she wanted or needed and, and, yeah. and she was, you know, um, she was amazing that way. Yeah. 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 It's very minimalist, isn't it? And it's very pure as in, as a brief. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you know, she's like, I don't need a lot of space. I'm not worried about resale. I just want a house for me, yeah. you know? Um, did it take much convincing with Laurel in terms of the proposals that you did come up with then? No, not at all. <laughs> she really? Was, <laughs> just she was in. like just completely trusting. She was, you know, she's kind of a unicorn client in that respect. Like when I met her, she said, uh, she said, look, I'm a retired school teacher. I really believe in investing in, you know, like young minds. And I mean, I wasn't that young, but I was, you know, I was starting out. And she's like, I know all I need to know. I really like you. I like the work you've shown me. Um, like, I want to invest. I want this to be um, a springboard for you. Like, I want, I yeah. want, uh, I want to give something to you. It was extremely generous. Like, extremely generous. And yet, she trusted me like a seasoned professional. You know, she really trusted me. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's truly. Was she, was she right wonderful. to do that, or whether this? I don't know what point this sort of came in in setting up practice, but um, 
how did you feel of uh, had you done many homes yourself as in not another practice? yeah i mean i've done a lot of homes previously yeah. so um i never felt uh this was completely manageable i think that the most difficult part was just push negotiating this with the city and mm-hmm. um and you know you know, I know lawyers, I know planning consultants, I know a lot of high priced people who can help push these things through, but Laurel didn't have the budget to hire those people, you know? So I felt, so it was kind of on my shoulders and that's where, um, that was the hardest part, you know, Mm -hmm. um, was trying to negotiate all of that. Um, it feels like just talking to you that you, you kind of really sort of bought into as in i do think when a client has that level of trust it places it's also pressure isn't it of wow that's real amazing kind of level of trust yeah i mean i put that kind of pressure on myself regardless but i think that um I, i felt that she like there was such a generosity of spirit um and trust that she had in yeah. me that, you know, um, I felt extremely generous toward, toward her. And I felt yeah. like I was going to fight to the end for Laurel. Yes. You know? That's what I was going to say. It feels like there was a sort of fight on of Yeah. You know, this woman deserves it. So let's get this it woman deserves this. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and she was not like, she's not, you know, she had, um, the only reason she was in a position to do this is that she had had a couple of, um, Sadly, she'd had a couple of major deaths in her family in the past few mm-hmm. years. I think one of her parents died and one of her siblings had died and they had both left her a small chunk of money. Mm-hmm. And so she was in a now in a position for the first time in her life um, where, you know, she had some money in the bank and thought, you know what, I'm going to invest it in my home. But I don't mm-hmm. think she was ever somebody who imagined doing a project like this or yeah. living in a home, uh, you know, in a, a home that was designed by an architect. Like all of this was... Um, you know, there were no, there was no entitlement or expectation. It was just, yeah. um, it was, you know, it was just really great. And I wanted her to just absolutely get the most and have everything she wanted and, um, and get the best value. And so I was, you know, and I really this, believed in her and I believed in the project. Immensely, but this house, so. the design exudes that it's got, it's every, every sort of square meter has been worked and, um, not in any kind of gimmick way or any kind of showy way, just all the pure things that are coming from the brief about light and about space and efficiency, the use of that space. Um, there's so many kind of little details in it, maybe starting just from the outside, we've talked about the shape and where we see it from the street, but then how you've articulated the entrance and the cladding. What's the cladding here? Because most of the houses, they're all timber timber board aren't they yeah this is very different this is strikingly different so this is like galvanized aluminum like corrugated material that you would see on like um a a barn roof or Mm. here here you would see it on a barn roof or um you know it's like it's like tin it's what you call like tin (laughs) it's not actually tin but um it's like tin shed you know yeah um and, um, you know, it's like literally the least expensive thing I think that you could, uh, that you can buy. Um, you know, it's virtually indestructible, um, because it has a galvanization, uh, galvanized patina to it. Like it's going to be years before it ever starts to corrode. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but also because of that galvanized patina, it like actually, um, it diffuses the light really beautifully. <laughs> yeah. So it actually has a kind of, um, you know, for being an industrial material, it has this kind of softness 
um, and um, uh, I don't know. I, I'm searching for the adjective, but it's very beautiful. Yeah, you know, oh, it's got really nice texture to it, hasn't it? That's yeah, cool. and very, but very crisp, really nice. Yeah, crisp so it's, lines. you know, it's like a lot of things. If it's detailed well, it can look really, can look really crisp. You know, and is it um, used? Is it used a lot in residential work in Toronto? This material. Um, I think uh, no, not typically, but it, you might see it. You know, more commonly in the country, like on yeah. a on a cool, um, you know, farmhouse or something like that. Um, you know, you'd see I've, there are some you know, um, maybe more design oriented, like additions and stuff where you would see it here, here, typically, you know, the kind of, we call it bog standard cladding that you're going to buy at your home Depot for your house is going to be, um, uh, either like a James Hardy, like a cement board product, um, uh, or a, uh, like a vinyl siding, which is just mm-hmm. like, you know, the really the most awful stuff I've yet to figure out a way how to make <laughs> that look good. Um, and I mean, it's vinyl, it's like terrible material and, um, or, or aluminum siding, but typically yeah. this is considered like on the industrial end of the aluminum yeah. siding. So you would, you would typically see it in, um, a more boxier corrugation in like black or green or something like that. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. But it's definitely it's a design statement. It stands out for for the street in its context, but mainly driven by by cost. Is it going back to budget again and being efficient? I mean, look, there's there is a sort of, and I, I hate to use this term because it sounds derogatory, but I don't mean it in a derogatory way. There is a bit of a, like a shanty town element to this uh, this whole area, right? And yeah. the, the size of the homes and the um, and you know it's a real mixed bag of what's going on there. And so, um, you know, so in some ways these Victorian cottages, uh, in some ways the typology is like, is, is a Victorian home, but in other ways it's also, it's sort of like a garden shed, (laughs) you know, they're sort of like, they're these glorified sheds. Um, so that's also, that that's part of where that, came from i mean you yeah. know part of laurel's brief was that she wanted something that was indestructible and that she didn't have to maintain and uh um and that was affordable and you know this is um a sort of obvious choice but it also you know references that sort of makeshift the makeshiftness of the yeah. um the the homes in that area which is definitely part of the um the fabric you know although it's metal it does feel quite light that's the, and so when you come in to the entrance, you've got this really nice sort of slick sheet of metal. So really keeping it really simple as a canopy over the mm-hmm. door, and then it's and then it's glass around the sides. No kind of slim minimal frame glass. It's just kind of nice kind of chunky frames and things. What I so one of the details I love is that when you first come in this door, you're then faced with the kitchen, but it's a there's a tall unit that faces you. Behind that tall unit is is the kitchen. Yeah, but have you, you looked at the? A, have you seen the drawings? Uh, I haven't actually. No, oh, so you you've, can, you've extrapolated all of this from photographs? Yeah, yeah. This is just uh, this is just looking through <laughs> okay, the photos. Architects. Uh, well, that's what, what I love. Okay. I mean, this is a great house to kind of be figuring out, like what's going on here. Yeah, that's house. true. Actually, You're just like because you see the. We should get a bunch of architects to draw the plan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do my accurate. version of the plan and then send it to you. Okay. But you see this cupboard, but you see around. You can see either side of this cupboard. So when you're on the other side, you're in the kitchen, and the kitchen unit kind of basically runs up to the door so you've you've created a window or a gap 
between this tall cupboard that you can see through to the kitchen, but it creates privacy. I just think it's a really, really simple, but a really neat little, very weird thing that I wouldn't have thought of myself <laughs> to do. <laughs> but it works. Can you maybe talk through that of what's what's happening here and what the thinking is behind it? Yeah, so basically that whole, like, where that glass is on the front facade, where you come in the front door, all the way through um, the house, like, there's there's a there's a viewing access so on the other side of that there's another big window and door Mm -hmm. and then that views into this courtyard in the back so there's this kind of like there's this um there's this kind of like open viewing corridor along that Mm -hmm. um but i didn't want people to be able to see from the street all the way into the house and into that corridor i mean and i also don't like um also sort of fascinated with, you know, playing with ways to make small spaces feel more expansive. So, you know, one of the yeah. things is when you walk into a house and you can see right through it to the back, like the whole space collapses, you know. So it's sort of like, yeah. how do you create, how do you kind of layer in order to, um, in order to kind of attenuate that space? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's one thing that's going on. Um the kitchen naturally sort of situated itself on that side of the plan for various reasons. And because, I mean, there's so little that was going into the space, right? There was very little, there are very few partitions. There's like one door, two doors. Mm. Um, uh, the, the cabinetry of the kitchen, you know, was like an opportunity to like actually start to yeah. you know, define space and layer views and so on. So we, there were actually, that was the, actually that was the element of the, the design that was the most iterated was the way that that cabinetry worked. Um, that whole zone, the entry zone, the kitchen, and then behind it where I think you're describing the peninsula, behind that peninsula, there's actually a tiny little stair that goes down to the basement. Right. Uh, the basement is storage. It's unfinished, but like, our, our homes have to have, they have basements um, uh, because of the freeze-thaw thing that I explained. So yeah. um, um, so the stairwell, the kitchen, and the front entry were always part of this, like, one bank of the plan. And so the way that those puzzled together, there were endless iterations of that. Um, yeah. Uh, but this yeah. kitchen, when, so when you're stood in the kitchen... Oh, yes. When you're stood in the entrance, you can see through and you can see the kitchen counter, but you can't see somebody stood at the kitchen. That's the bit that I find yes. really interesting is it kind of it's very difficult to describe it. Um, and you'd have thought after doing these interviews, I'd, I'd be able to describe it eloquently, but I can't with this one. But what I'm curious is that <laughs> bit of kitchen that's between the tall units and the wall. There's a bit of kitchen that you can't access of countertop that you can't really access when you're stood in the kitchen, but you can... It's like a, it's like a corner. It's like a corner. Yeah, counter. it's a real corner. Yeah. What what is that? So what's, you could come what's... in. Well, you know, the idea was to basically, I like to sort of like open up, um, to open up pockets where you can like where you can pull in light from various directions mm. and have a sense that there is space beyond and like space yeah. unfolding. So there's like there's this fluid connection, but there are still like thresholds. Um. Mm-hmm. um 
So that was part of that. Um, but I also wanted to maintain that act that like viewing access and that access of light. Yeah. So basically when you're in the kitchen, you know, you can get a sense, like you, you can see the windows at, at the entryway and so on. And then to the left, you have the windows into the courtyard. So you're yeah. in, um, it's a cross. It's a cross lit space. Yeah, a it's a cross space, cross lit yeah. space. So, and it's the sort of office. It's the antidote to the to the space adjacent to it, the living room, dining room, which has no windows on any walls, but only light from above. Right. Yeah. So here we have a low volume with windows at at each end, and then adjacent to it we have this tall volume with light mm. coming in from above. Um, the other thing was purely like it was functional. The idea is that like you know you can come in the front door. There is actually an entryway, you know, because I feel like yeah. you know um, it's important to have some moment, some entry moment, yeah. you know, uh, where you can take off your shoes, hang your coat, but also if you have groceries and stuff, you know, you can like literally plop them on the kitchen counter without going into the yeah. house. Um, you know, it also gives you just a little bit of counter in your entryway, which is kind of a luxury to have. You know, drop to... the keys, the phone, exactly, that kind yeah. Of spot. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at the other end of that, so there's the kitchen unit that runs along the wall. The back wall, wall, yeah. And then there's the peninsula that shields the stairs that go down to the cellar. Yeah, and that forms a guard. Garden. It forms a bar- a guard to the stair, basically, that But that peninsula. stair, they don't link. You haven't made them an L-shape like that would typically be done. They both kind of stop. And I think that's a, another really clever... These are like really small little details, but they're what make this project, in my opinion. But the, the fact that they don't touch each other means you avoid one of those really awkward corner cabinets that you get in kitchen and you get more space to stand at the peninsula is that yes. the, is that the idea of that yes and then also the the end of that main bank of cabinetry there's there's storage in there so mm-hmm. you end up getting more useful storage than if you were to basically be relying on a um, yeah. a cabinet and it's also a place to, like it's a nice moment to put a plant or like a step stool or a chair if she gets older and might want to like, yeah. you know, sit in the kitchen. Um, yeah. And you don't get this level of thinking, I don't think, unless it's a house that's like this and is small and the brief is simple and you get, that's the benefit you get is you get this real focus then on these, these kind of. That's what I love. Like that's details. where I enjoy myself the most in this kind yeah. of, this, yeah. And then, yeah, so I mean, the, I, I say I dread the day somebody comes to me and says they want like a five thousand square foot home. Like, you know, in some ways, it's a great commission. But in other <laughs> ways, like, I don't know where I'm going to find myself there. You know? Yeah, if you have this level of focus in each room, yeah. you'd be there forever. <laughs> That's another so, point I haven't thought about, but yes. <laughs> so, in terms of then the other spaces, so can you tell me a little bit about? what it feels like what you're thinking here in terms of the way this light is coming because you talked you just mentioned there about the contrast between this kitchen space being low ceiling but cross lit with views front to back the lounge being the total opposite um tell me a little bit about your kind of thinking about this space and and how you designed it sorry which space the so the the lounge and dining space right so i mean i think i saw that more as the kind of like the sanctuary space you know Mm -hmm. um it's just this kind of like light filled you know cocoon basically um again it's flexible it's it's one big volume she can put her dining table on one end and her living on the other she can switch it up um um you know as she desires um the, the light scoop has, it has artificial lighting in it. So at night, it's not a big dark void. Like it, it it'll glow at night too. Um, mm-hmm. 
And um, yeah, I saw that as a very private space where um, uh, nobody can see into that space from the outside. And, um, and, but Laurel can actually see outside from that space. So she can see through that front entryway toward the street and she can also see through into the the courtyard, which becomes sort of an extension of, of the main volume. And then that, you know, that kitchen corridor that we just spoke about becomes a slightly more, um, uh, uh, sorry, public is completely the wrong word, but we use that incorrectly yeah. in architecture all the time. But it becomes um, the less private space that is slightly yeah. more connected to the world outside, um, but still has uh, layers of privacy that make it yeah. feel intimate. Um, and has then, it been in- yeah, sorry, go ahead. Has it been interesting to see how she's? occupied this space because the the photographs are very kind of minimal very few belongings yeah. in, there in terms of just real basic things like where the sofa has gone and things like that yeah has- so i think so she's consulted with me like you know what do you think about hanging this picture here that kind of stuff the yeah. one of the unfortunate things here is that it when she moved in it was the beginning of covid yeah and so we photographed it before she was properly moved in so we the yeah. photographs are very stark and you know and it, it, the house hadn't really been lived in Mm-hmm. Um, so I absolutely intend and, you know, now we'll, we'll, we'll see what's going on, but hopefully yeah. sooner rather than later to actually go in there and actually, um, again, uh, and, and do another set of photographs, yeah. um, to, to see how she's, uh, sort of settled into the space and begun to occupy it more. Um, uh, yeah. Have you seen any of it or actually sorry when these questions of where to put a picture were there any things where you're like no no i mean (laughs) you know like it's so sweet of her to be like asking me like you know she's sort of like she she has this like reverence for the for the fact that like it's it's an extension of me so i should like you know um uh so she wants my input which is just like so lovely but you know she should like she should fill it you know the way uh she sees fit you know like mm-hmm. to some degree like she's the one living in the space now so she knows it better than i do now like she yeah. absolutely knows it better and i mean you know i i never considered myself a minimalist uh before like i'm sort of finding my my voice in some ways but what i I think that I, what I do know that I like is um, I like a very minimal architecture, but that Mm -hmm. has the kind of um, thought and consideration in the design that it can basically accommodate an incredible fullness. So like, I want the architecture to just be this minimal backdrop to like all the, like, like just all of life, like the mess, the clutter, the beauty, you know, I want it to serve that. So, Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I want to be able to go and see how, how her life has filled the house. Now the, in this scenario, Laurel herself is a minimalist. So I don't expect, um, you know, uh, I don't necessarily expect it to be full of clutter in any, in any way, shape or form, but, um, you know, in another sense, the, the few, the few, objects that she has like you know she had she had this incredible painting when i went to see when i met her um of two small houses ironically like Mm -hmm. these two small houses with pitched roofs um and uh you know and i can't wait to see where 
you know, I can't wait to see that hanging in the house. Um, yeah. Uh, she does paint some painting and drawing on her own, like the s- small watercolors and so on. And so I don't know if she's hung any of that up, but you know, um, yeah, I, you know, I'd love to just, it gives me an immense amount of pleasure to see somebody like, and satisfaction to see somebody like actually using the thing that you design, yeah. like using it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things I really love is that you know, we talked about the the roof on the outside, how it scoops the light in. So you've got that. That's all running along the side wall where the lounge and the dining are, so the opposite side of the kitchen. The kitchen side where it is the lower flat ceiling. I love how that runs right through into the bedroom. It's at the back onto the garden. But it also, the house gets narrower at the back. So where there's the peninsula, it faces out to the garden. Yeah. That's because the house is getting narrower, but that yeah. so there's a veranda on the back. So one third of the back of the house is a long veranda and the other bit is bedroom, roughly. Exactly, yeah. But that ceiling carries on out for that veranda. It's a really nice, very modernist kind of inside-outside continuation. Um, how Was that something that was was taken again from the existing building and the footprint or is this did you scoop this veranda out of the back of the house so um so yeah the footprint of the internal space is the footprint of the eternal space so that yep. was um that was new basically so the existing house just cut away in this kind of sort of l shape right um mm-hmm. you know that this veranda was on the south side of the house and so um it was her, like, that's her primary outdoor space, um, which she told me that, you know, she used a lot. Like, she, she used that side yard a lot um, mm-hmm. when she was inhabiting the original house. And so, you know, it makes sense to give her some coverage um, so that she can be there in, you know, in different weather. Uh, but also because it's on the south side, you know, it, it also makes, you know, it's a perfect place to have a canopy in terms of mitigating um, you know, overheating and, and, uh, and shielding light and, and so on. Like, it's not going to be a dark, uh, a dark veranda. So, uh, basically the extents of that were completely dictated by the zoning bylaw. So you could have, um, you could have a, a roof overhang, but it could only go so far and it could only be a certain yeah. square footage. So that was kind of like, you know, that kind of mapped itself on. And then the way that the insides like started to respond to the kind of parameters of what that could be. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then is it, I've got a quote here that I've pulled out from, um, I don't know where I got this, but it must be an article or an interview you did, but mm-hmm. you talked about, I'm interested in this idea of an infinite architecture. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel which, like an asshole for saying that. <laughs> well, why? Okay. Well, that's I feel question. like that sounded why do you feel like, like an asshole saying that, that? I, I was like, did I really say the word infinite <laughs> architecture? I mean, <laughs> Like I thought that was like he, I didn't. Hey, I didn't pull out the quote to shame you. I thought it was a good quote. I said to my <laughs> husband, "Like, oh my god, did I actually say this?" Like, <laughs> um, what I meant, what I meant is, um, uh, <laughs> it sounds like a megalom. It sounds like a megalomaniacal statement of the. Well, kind no, I get, I, I get. Just... I'm looking here. At the, I've got an image up here of the bathroom. Yeah, that's an infinite architecture. That's an infinite architecture. <laughs> there you go. So what I what I meant uh, <laughs> what I meant by that is uh, the sense of like space, kind of like infinitely unfolding. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the sense that the extents 
of the space are never fully, fully revealed. That you can be in a room and you are never going to like register like all four walls, a floor and a ceiling. Like there's always yeah. a sense of something beyond. Um, yeah, that's something that I really love to play out in all of my projects. And this is a really great example of it. Isn't it? I mean, we took that roof and the veranda and the ceiling going out, the the ceiling going up and the kind of hidden source of light above in the lounge. That When we're in the bathroom part, so there's the bath and the shower that are then behind this glass screen. It's kind of a, a wet area. And it, it seems like the ceiling is infinite. It just goes up and there's light coming from somewhere. Is that part of the exactly, sawtooth yeah. of the roof? Yeah, so that sawtooth so goes all the way in. to the... So again, the extent of the sawtooth was also dictated by the zoning bylaw. So that yeah. that roof second story had to stop at a certain point. And, and so basically, that, that you could get it. Over well, I mean, it, it was a lot of it? massaging. Yeah, but basically, <laughs> it meant that it could extrude into the private, the, the most private realm of the plan, like the be yeah. the bedroom bathroom, basically. So the bedroom's right at the back, so it doesn't go over into the bedroom. Um, yeah. But it basically it stops halfway through the bathroom, and mm. so we use that corner of the bathroom to pull in light. Um, it just so happens to stop the perfect length of a bath. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's the genius of the architect right there. <laughs> I put the bath there. <laughs> yeah. And then and then the very last room is then is the it's, bedroom, which it's is a right bedroom. at the end. And this nice side window. There's no sort of window looking straight out at the back. It's the side. But what it what it does is beautiful. Is that I'm sure there's an access on this building that if you had the bedroom door open, you could see all the way through to the end of that room with the wardrobes and there's just this dappled light that comes across so the yeah there's like across a, the space there's a pivot door that basically separates the bathroom and the bedroom from mm -hmm. uh there's like a there's another little room there's like a small den which she uses as her sort of painting studio that is literally yeah. sized is literally um you know 1.8 meters uh long uh so that you could put a bed in there if you ever had to basically yeah. um at one point in the drawings we had a we had a bed in there as just like a spare bedroom slash den and then she said no i'll actually uh i don't need another bedroom i'll just use it up like i don't need a bed in this room i'll use it as yeah. my little studio um uh so yeah sorry so the the door divides off the bedroom and the bathroom but it's mostly sits in an open position Mm -hmm. the whole time but if she has people over she can kind of close that off so uh yep. it feels like a, a private zone so what what's been the reaction to this project like let's say locally in toronto if this is a familiar street um what kind of response have you had as an architect to um i mean i've had an overwhelmingly you know like positive response people are really mm. excited about it um um you know, I'm I'm thrilled because it's just like an extremely special project for me. And I remember working on it and I think, you know, uh, some some people around me who aren't architects, you know, were sort of like, why are you why are you, you know, throwing your whole self into this dinky little project? But I'm like, no, no, this is like this has all the makings of just just of something incredible, you know, like in yeah. every way, uh, it's a great story. It's a fabulous client. It's a fascinating street. It's an amazing typology. It's an unusual size. It's a completely liberating program. Um, mm. 
you know, uh, you know even the like the the budget, you know, um, it, it forces you to just be inventive and practical mm. and resourceful. And um, I felt like it was really special. So the fact that, um, you know, other people feel the same way about it is is really meaningful. I mean, I think for me, like because of COVID, not many people really went to see it. Um, yeah. And, um, but when our photographer, uh, when he came to take photographs of it, you know, um, this was the first time I had worked with this particular photographer. Mm -hmm. So he didn't know me and he hadn't seen my work, uh, or he, sorry, he hadn't been in any of my uh, projects. And so we met there and, you know, like he sort of didn't want to leave. Like we spent, we spent a whole day there, even though he, I had only commissioned him for half a day. Yeah. And he, he wanted to just be there and like see the light, you know, he was obsessed with the light changing yeah. and it kept changing and it kept changing and it kept changing. And like, he wrote me after and he's like, and he just said to me something like, you know, that space is just like filled me with joy. And it was just like, mm. Like, it's just so wonderful to hear that, you know. I mean, it's just so... Particularly when you think of the amount of good spaces that architecture photographers see. Yeah, and this like guy's... Something. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and this guy's... He's, he's photographing, like, multi-million dollar homes that, yeah. you know, are exquisitely designed by extremely talented architects. Um, but he was... He was fabulous. And actually, he kind of gave... he You know, he gave me a lot of confidence because I was thinking about applying for this this emerging architect award um just at a, about that time mm -hmm. and you know and he was like lenya this is this is something this is something special you know and um like i don't know how you felt when you started your practice but you're sort of like i know i could do it but you know am i good mm. <laughs> i don't know like i'm just like am i am i good am i good enough you know i'm constantly wondering if i'm good enough and so yeah you know i mean what what does that mean that's a whole other question what does it mean to be good enough but um, he gave me confidence to apply for this award and, you know, we won the award, which yeah. is like, you know, great. And I credit a lot of that to the, just to the personal success I feel from the, from the materialization of that project. Yeah. Well, at the heart of the project, there's a story of, um, well, to start with an architect that was willing to and to, to be taken on a project whilst heavily pregnant and then having a child <laughs> this is one one part of the story but also then a client um you know client where it, this project clearly had meaning for for you in terms of wanting to do it for this client and wanted to do it in a certain way and to a certain budget and within certain rules that had to be kind of followed um I think that's the that's the beauty of the project is the story that's behind it, as well as the fact that it's stunning and extremely clever Thank um, you. and extremely simple as well. Um, in terms of you know, it's simple and clever together. Um, well, then, okay, I'm going to ask you now the three questions that I ask all oh, my gosh, guests on yeah, the podcast. This is, this is a scary part. <laughs> uh, the first one is: What is the one thing that really annoys you in your home? Right. So I was sitting in bed last night and I thought I have an answer to this. And now I've blanked. What's the one thing <laughs> that really annoys me in my home? What was I going to say? Well, right now I'm living in a temporary home while we renovate yeah. <laughs> our other home, which was full of annoyance. <laughs> um, 
you know, as I have become, uh, as I've become, it's <laughs> the very boring answer. As I've become older and more, uh, and more sensitive to my environment and less tolerant of, of my environment, uh, the draftiness in my, <laughs> in my old timber home drives yeah. me nuts. Um, you guys suffer with damp. Yep. Yeah. We get a lot, like our houses are timber frames. So literally, I mean, I can, they're like cardboard, you know, mm -hmm. they're not insulated. Like they, they weren't insulated. So you've but got. Isn't it freezing in winter? Well, I mean, a lot of the homes at some point in their lifespan were insulated, but originally yeah, uh, they weren't insulated. And yes, it's absolutely, it's absolutely freezing. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you're in a, you know, you buy like a, an older home, like our, you know, this is a Victorian, Toronto's a Victorian city largely. And so, um, uh, our timber, even the, the brick houses that you see in our, in our city are very often, not always, but they're very often like just a brick veneer, a layer yeah. of brick on a, on a timber structure. So they're still like extremely porous. Um, mm -hmm. and over time, like bits and pieces of them were sometimes insulated. So lo most of them have had renovations that were undertaken in like the sixties and then the eighties. And so, yeah. but then there are walls where like, you know, there's probably no insulation. And if you sit by a particular wall, it's extremely drafty. It's made me very aware of the, um, very highly aware of the, uh, the, the benefits of like a good envelope and, and, you know, and the merits of, of achieving a good envelope, even in a, like, you know, on a renovation, which is, so I'm, I'm assuming this is something you're fixing then. Yes, actually. So <laughs> in the end, uh, so we've done almost a full gut on our, on our house. Yeah. Um, and we worked with, um, a sustainability consultant and we're doing mm -hmm. it as a net zero ready, which means it won't have yeah. the, it's not going to have solar panels and, and, and so on. But, um, the air exchange, the, the, the envelope is, is extremely tight. It's been a really yeah. interesting process and, um, it's really fussy to do that on an, on a, on a renovation on yeah. an old home because there's just all these nooks and crannies where mm -hmm. you're, um, uh, where you have air leakage that are so much harder to kind of get to and control and isolate. But, um, yeah. we've done it. So, uh, I look really, f I really look forward to living in like a comfortable, uh, home. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> And if you could then describe one house that you visited that's really inspired you and tell me why. You know, I was going to say Sarah Wigglesworth's house. Uh, it's just like such an incredible series mm -hmm. of spaces, like so full of like, you know, when you talk so a space about, you know, very, for people that don't know it, it's her, it's also the office or, or was it? I don't know if it still is now, but yeah, it still is. So you worked in the house. Yeah. So there's yeah. sort of, there are two, like it's an L shaped plan. And mm -hmm. so one leg of the L is the, is the house and one leg of the L is the office and mm. the hinge point uh, of the two where they intersect is the dining slash conference room. So it functions yeah. as the domestic and also the, um, uh, the professional uh, sphere, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and there's interesting ways that it transforms itself. Like, um, yeah. you know, there's like an exuberance 
and uh, liberation to to the way that like Sarah designs, which is so incredible. I don't. I feel like I don't have that. I'm I'm different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. But at this. But you know, in the same way, like you know, talking about a house that is so so strongly a manifestation of like of 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 a per, of an individual or you mm-hmm. know in this case it's Sarah and Jeremy Till um um of their ideologies uh yeah. you know about living and working their sensibilities um uh their interests their personalities like yeah. it's you know like it's like it's a classic. Everyone should have a tour of that home. I know she opens it up like yeah. almost once a year, um, but it's incredible. And there were a lot of, you know, they built it themselves with, uh, yeah. you know, they, they managed the project and had various people um, implementing various parts of it. And so there was a lot of like, uh, there is that kind of like hand of the architect who actually like was like, okay, let's use bungee cords here and yeah. string them this way. Like a lot of, a lot of incredible inventiveness that you can, in some ways, sadly, only do when it's your, you know, when your hands are in the build, you yeah. know. I think it was on the very first ever series of Grand Designs as well. It was. I, I mean, it I remember was. watching the episode. I think it was one of the very first ones. It was. Um, and I think they've just refurbished it. Like, I saw um, I saw some press about uh, some, like, aging in place renovations that yeah. they did. I think it won an award for that. So there's some interesting, uh. de- like, Sarah's really interesting with details and and especially like making use of like off the shelf like you know um kind of like taking the prosaic and totally reinventing it um yeah and so there's so there's a lot of interesting interventions like that which seems to have come into the come into the building yeah and then if you could choose any designer to design you a new home who would you choose yeah so i was thinking about this so right now so definitely i would choose to live in a renovated home because i just lay i just love the um i just love that like layering and i love architecture which is like responsive to to uh an existing set of bones and idiosyncrasies mm-hmm. um the person that i've recently discovered is in your neck of the woods named jonathan tucky mm-hmm. i like i'm just in love with his work yeah so i would love a jonathan tucky renovated home <laughs> like in <Right>. the woods <laughs> <laughs> you know probably in like you know somewhere in scotland or something like that <laughs> yeah so two two london-based answers there oh i think is jonathan tucky london i think, I think he's he in he's in the uk i think he's in, he's London. in the uk yeah we'll say i'll take that then two uk locations yeah um well anya thank you very much um I've loved sort of finding out about um, this project and about the clients. And um, I'm very excited to see uh, where things are going next. I mean, I already know there's not a chance to talk about that in this interview, but there's there's lots of exciting things in the pipeline as well for your studio. Yeah, I hope um, so. But yeah. I'm glad we've, we've managed to get you on here early before it goes stratospheric. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you so much. And it's so wonderful that you, like, take the time to do this podcast and... Um, it takes commitment and discipline and all the research you do. It's like, it's fabulous. Thank you for listening to this episode. 
If you'd like to find out more about Anya and about the Craven Road micro project, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out the Instagram page to see the work of all my guests. I was introduced to Anya's work by a fellow Canadian of hers and a previous guest of mine on the podcast, Melissa White. You can listen to my interview with Melissa in episode four by visiting the Another Architecture Podcast website. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode. And thanks again for listening.